Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 4 from Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II by Darlene Dibbler Rose. Chapter 4. All women and children eventually were to be moved to Molino, knowing that we too could be uprooted we packed boxes of essential linens and household items and left them by our front doors in readiness. We had only to put a few personal articles in our bags and we would be ready to move at a moment's notice. We had learned that the Japanese soldiers were an impatient people. When they said, Pai Guy, go, you had better be ready to Pai Guy. We had read correctly the handwriting on the wall. The Japanese would not be happy until we were under constant surveillance. In December of 1942, army officers arrived in a truck. Without a greeting of any kind, they made a tour of the house, flicking this and that with their canes and making comments to one another in Japanese. The officer in charge flopped into Dr. Jaffrey's chair and taking in the whole of the house with a disdainful sweep of his hand announced, You live much luxury. We take you somewhere and turn you. I glanced at the single-walled wood frame house, the simple furnishings, thought of our battle with rats and the struggle to stay alive. No thanks to them, for we had yet to receive our first grain of rice or rations of any kind from them luxury we lived much luxury we went to our bedrooms to collect our personal luggage i put my bible diary bride's book and hymnal in russell's briefcase then added my house coat and as many dresses and articles of lingerie as it would hold our furlough was already four months overdue and my dresses were well worn, with the exception of one. It was a green and white checkered seersucker. The skirt was a full circle. It had been sent me a, as a birthday gift the year before by friends from Boone, Iowa. It had pleased me so much that I had been saving it for the trip back to the States at furlough time. Margaret and I placed the boxes and other luggage in the uh, truck, helped Dr. and Mrs. Jaffrey and the other ladies onto the truck bed, then crawled aboard to hang on for dear life, lest we be thrown out during the starts and stops, and when the driver changed gears on the steep grades. Most truck drivers pride themselves on being able to shift from one gear to another with at least a modicum of finance or finesse. Uh, not this one, however, he may have been trying to make it difficult for us to stay on our feet. We arrived in the late afternoon at the native market area and were ordered out of the truck. As we unloaded our baggage, the commanding officer pointed out a small house across the valley from Milano. It was just visible through the trees. Then he said, These men will carry your 
baggage, and with a sweep of his cane he indicated a number of natives who had gathered to watch the proceedings. With that he left. I was amazed and grateful that we were allowed help, but wondered if we would be able to cope with them. All eighteen were Boringes, a licentious, licentious-looking lot. I felt the hair rise on the back of my neck, but in an emergency, it's amazing how one can rise to the occasion. This was an emergency to survive. We needed every box, parcel, and bag we had. I suggested that Dr. Jaffrey go on ahead with the others, for it would soon be dark. Each one carried his or her small bag of personal items. If it hadn't been so frightening, it would have been hilarious. Dr. Jaffrey led the entourage, carrying his black satchel and eau de cologne medicines in his left hand, his cane in his right. Mrs. Jaffrey followed, wearing a black velvet cape lined in white satin, for which she thanked the Lord every time she put it on. She looked very regal with her beautiful white hair as she stepped into the path, bearing in her arms a magnificent large silver soup tureen, formerly owned by Dr. Jaffrey's favorite aunt. Then, in single file, the others followed after, Miss Seeley bringing up the rear. Ruth and I, as the youngest, volunteered to follow with the carriers and the rest of the baggage. I wasn't about to let those Boringes men know how scared I was. We checked their loads, lined them up in single file, then ordered them to move out with Ruth at the head of the column and me positioned at the rear. I had agreed with Ruth that as soon as we hit the jungle, where it would be fairly dark, we would start circling them. I gave Ruth a signal, then counting in my most material tones, Satu, Dua, Tinga, Im Impat, I marched to the front of the line, with Ruth circling to the rear, doing the same thing, reaching the first man in the line. I shouted, Dilipan, Billas, 18. As soon as I heard Ruth yell, 18, I, I'd retreat down the other side, counting the men off again, and Ruth would advance toward the front. We continued this until we finally emerged from the jungle on the other side of the valley. Reaching the small house indicated by the officer, we found the others waiting for us. They had lighted a small kerosene lamp. I ordered the carriers to sit down while I examined each piece of luggage to make sure none of them had been rifled, then handed the boxes and parcels into the house. As soon as the last piece was safe inside, I took the carriers to or I told the carriers to return to Molino and report to the Japanese officer. When the last man disappeared outside the circle of light, I went inside. After my previous encounter with the Wenji's bandit at Binting Tinji, I had a healthy respect for the Boenjis and their machetes. These men had all been armed. 
God had graciously protected us as I thought of our trip through that stretch of dark jungle and how easily we could have been killed and all the luggage lost. I felt overwhelmed. I began to retch. Mrs. Jaffrey knew I wouldn't make it to the door, so she grabbed the nearest container, her beautiful silver soup tureen, and stuck it under my chin. The levity of the situation struck us, and with the blessed gift of laughter, the tension eased. We decided that we should bed down wherever we found a spot. It would be easier to arrange things in the daylight. I slept on the table that night, and for several nights following, until I could make myself a bench. Our house was very small, two tiny rooms, a narrow hall, and a small cubicle for a bathroom. We would have to cook over an open wood fire under a two-person-sized lean-to on the east side of the house. Ruth and I slept on benches in the room that was to function as our dining room, sitting room, study, and by night our bedroom. Dr. Jaffrey slept on a narrow bench in the hall, and the others slept on crude wooden beds arranged a dormitory fashion in the second room. It was all terribly crowded. Maybe we had been living much luxury at Bentingtingy. Take seven very individual, independent women and one gentleman, accustomed to being a leader, put them in cramped quarters such as these in which we were now being confined, and what do you have? Put God in the midst, and you have that rare and beautiful thing known as the Fellowship of the Saints. We set up a work roster. Firewood had to be gleaned from the jungle. Water carried from a nearby stream for cooking and washing clothes. Edibles collected and cooked. Each person was responsible for his or her own bed. A place was found for everything, and everything had to be kept in its place. By turns, we swept and cleaned the floors and bathroom. In Molino, we found a type of wild millet that we dubbed birdseed, because we always sang as we cooked it. Whatever it was, we were pleased with our find, for the more water we added and the longer we cooked it, the more it swelled. Our stomachs were full. On many occasions I stood at the fire, stirring by turns with Ruth a large pot of this bird seed porridge. We would speculate on where Ernie and Russell were in Perry Perry, what the conditions and food were like, and run through our repertoire of love songs until the porridge was ready. Having no kerosene left for the lamps and no candles, we made torches from the silk of the milkweed pod and crushed kamari nuts. This type of torch smoked badly, but it furnished light by which to work and read. While gathering wood, one day Miss Seeley ran a very large sliver into the top of her foot. She had difficulty removing the piece of wood, and eventually the foot became angrily inflamed and swollen three times its normal size. We feared gangrene and watched an awful red streak appear beneath the skin. 
that signaled danger, but Miss Seeley exhibited perfect calm. After soaking her foot, she covered it with a clean handkerchief to keep off the flies. To our inqu inquiries, she replied, I'm trusting the Lord. He will heal it. Miss Seeley uttered her daily proclamation with total confidence, and, just as she had believed, within a period of time her foot returned to normal size. We were not left to our own devices many days before soldiers came to check on us. They gave the house a thorough inspection, shaking, lifting, and feeling every article in the house. When the inspection of Dr. Jaffrey's bed started, I turned away, lest my face betray my agitation. No one moved until the clump-clump of their heavy boots could no longer be heard. Your flashlight, Dr. Jaffrey. It's here. They lifted my mat and shook out my blanket, but never touched my pillow. Neither the flashlight nor the watch had been disturbed. I found joy and quietness of spirit in letting God be God. I never needed again to ask if the flashlight and watch were there. During this time, we wondered why the Japanese had moved us from Bentinji. We were closer to Molino, but still too far away for them to keep a close watch on us. Perhaps the army intended to use Bentinji for a rest and recreation center or for some military purpose. We remembered seeing some of these houses through binoculars from Penting Tingi. So, on such a clear afternoon, Benting Tingi should be visible from the end of the peninsula just beyond the last houses, said Margaret Jaffrey. Dr. Jaffrey walked a short distance with Margaret and me, then turned back. We had not been forbidden to walk wherever we wished, but had stayed close to the house purposely not wanting another encounter with the Boenji's people. By this time, we reached the last of the houses. Some of the buildings at Bintintinji were visible. There was activity about the property, so we knew it was being utilized by the Japanese. That was admittedly better than having the conference center vandalized by local Benji's marauders. Knowing it prudent not to be gone too long, we turned to go and come and came face to face with a Chinese who was as startled to see us as we were to see him. He greeted us cordially, then disappeared down the jungle path from which he had just emerged. Some instinct within me whispered, you'll hear from that man again. Next time, Chapter 5, Part 1.